Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Adjust Your Tracking is part of the Playlist Podcast Network. Find all of our episodes and those of our other shows at theplaylist.net. So, Joe, uh, what do we? Uh, we're, we're we are officially uh, into 2019. We're going to look at a couple movies this year. It's True. real. It's actually happening. Um, what uh, What are we talking about today? Well, today we're talking about two um, two movies that are available. Is is both of them available to stream? Uh, yes, because uh, Piercing will be a VOD as well, day and date. Okay, so Piercing. Uh, is one of the films we'll be discussing, which is uh, Nicholas Pesci. Is that how you say his last name? I don't know how to pronounce it, but that that sounds right. Pesky or Pesh, Pesci? Yeah, no relation to Joe. <laughs> but um, his follow-up to Eyes of My Mother um, is will be available day and date as of today, the day of the recording, February 1st, available in select cities. My city is one of the ones selected. And um, not yours? No, I don't think so. Okay, no offense. <laughs> None taken. So, um, and uh, Velvet Buzzsaw, Dan Gilroy's new film, director of Nightcrawler, and Roman J. Israel Esquire. Was that his follow-up to Nightcrawler? Yeah, I never, I never saw that one. I heard such mixed things. I never caught up with it. Yeah, I didn't hear good things, but yeah. you know, I enjoyed Denzel Washington's appearance on the promotional materials for it. He looked oh, great. Had okay. some great headphones. <laughs> um, good hair. Nice glasses. That's all I need. Don't yeah. really need to see the movie. Your work here is done. But, uh, so, so both films are kind of interesting, like hybrid films, and um, it's interesting to um, to like to look at Dan Gilroy's new work, especially because mm-hmm. uh, his film uh, Velvet Buzzsaw is like a it's a satirical film that manages to uh, smuggle some some horror elements into it, a satire of like the art world in Los Angeles or the art world at large, and kind of pretentious critique culture, us excluded. Um, and his movie Nightcrawler, also starring Jake Gyllenhaal from like 2014, like was such a like we we definitely championed that movie quite a bit. Oh yeah as like a just an atmospheric like <clears throat> la noir like a, a just a dark a brutally dark comedy at times like a thriller it, it it itself was kind of a hybrid and the fact that it was a success was really heartening and encouraging to like have a movie kind of that dynamic and that dark and that challenging do as well as it did it was number one at the box office the weekend it came out um and you know got a lot of like critical praise uh, a lot of a lot of focus and interest in you know the top performances in the movie jake gyllenhaal being one renee russo being another yeah and um so like but to think about how that movie might fare in today's theatrical climate as like as much as like the like people going to the movies is still a very alive thing the types of movies that are like kind of rising to prominence um are still, you know, the, the tentpole movies by and large. Um, so to think about a movie trying to elbow for space nowadays in the, at least in the theatrical release, a movie like Nightcrawler, I don't know how well it would do if it was open today. Mm. So like you, so, so it makes sense for him to sort of position his next outing as like a potential streaming movie. So he has a movie that's coming out on Netflix today. Mm-hmm. 
might be playing theatrically in a few theaters here. Not sure. But um, it's it's one of the ones where probably on paper, because it's such a like squirmy script in terms of like tone, like it's prime for not Amazon, but it's like prime for streaming services because like they're taking risks with a lot of stuff, like letting the filmmakers that they're most excited about just do whatever they want. Sometimes that has thrilling results, um, like a movie like Okja, or sometimes it has some mixed results, like, you know, David Michaud's War Machine. Mm. Uh, and like Netflix is definitely, their pedigree is definitely like increasing in terms of their output with movies like Roma coming out on the, on the streaming service. And so I thought like Velvet Buzzsaw is a good fit you know, and it looked like it was a movie that was like kind of filled with ideas and it was like kind of all over the place in terms of like the type of genre it was attempting to go for. Um, but does it land entirely? Does it work? Like, and I think, uh, when a movie is sort of being positioned to come out theatrically, like through the channels that it needs to typically like through a big studio, that's going to put the money behind it that like Netflix did to have it come out on its service. Like they want a clarity of tone. They want a clarity of like what, like who it's going to appeal to. And that's a little muddy with velvet buzzsaw. Like I, I, I think that it's a movie that works and fits and bursts. Like, I think it's like pretty funny at times. Um, Whether when it transitions into traditional, horror kind of nightmare logic moments, whether that it, it somersaults with grace is questionable, yeah. very questionable. Yeah. <laughs> but um, to me, it was like, it was an interesting mess and one that seems to be like in line with what, with what Netflix's output has been thus far. Like, mm. cause I think the exceptions to their output has been experiences like, Roma and hold the dark and the apostle and stuff like the, the stronger works that have come out on Netflix. Like they're the exception to the sort of messy rule that has been established thus far. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's really fair. And I'm, I really like the way you've led, you've led me right into what I was thinking watching this movie too, is (laughs) it is, it is a perfect movie for the Netflix model, but yet that's also what kind of, I think undid it. Uh, in its production or whatever is because it is a mess, but it is, I was, as I'm watching this film, I was just, uh, I, I definitely enjoyed it less than you even. Um, uh-huh. I, I thought this movie is pretty terrible. Um, but I was trying to find any silver lining cause you know, well, uh, what right. if, there's something to always take from a movie, you know, and what, what can we glean from this? And a lot of what I took was that, well, you know, Netflix is still taking chances. Like whatever was on the page for Velvet Buzzsaw, they thought, well, clearly this kind of movie's not going to get made anywhere else. I, I think that seems pretty obvious. Yeah. Not, not in the marketplace, uh, the theatrical marketplace. Um, they saw something worth taking a chance on a director who's who's had some success, uh, a writer director who's had some success, mm-hmm. and a bunch of famous, uh, several you know really well uh, known actors and and the whole thing. Um, so they're taking a chance. This movie exists and 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 it's so particular and strange that that's good. You know, it's out there. 
I want that to be the poll quote. <laughs> Eric McClanahan said this movie exists on the playlist. Well, yeah. I had to convince myself of that because I'm not kidding. Like a half an hour in, I thought I was this was like an episode of Jackass that I was on or something or not Jackass. What was that? Ashton punked. I thought I was being punked. I'm like, is this really a movie? Like, I I think I might've been hard on it partially because, um, it's hard to get immersed watching something on your laptop. The, the screeners that Netflix gives you, you know, I just watched it on my, my laptop Mm -hmm. certainly wasn't helping. Um, but I also think if you saw velvet buzzsaw in a theater, it would just, it would blow up all my issues that much more. I, I, I think, um, yeah, it would just magnify your it, issues. It really it. would. Yeah. Um, so that being said, uh, uh, it, it, it is, uh, it is the more typical Netflix output. I just, I was starting to, this is just one of many, many, many movies that they're going to put out in 2019. So, uh, it's, it's sort of two things. Like it's, it's interesting that like, you can take Netflix can take risks on stuff like this. Cause there's very little, like I think um, there's, there's very little that they'll lose in the scenario that if it turns out awful, because if this got a big release, uh, wide release in cinemas, you got Jake Gyllenhaal, Renee Russo, a noted filmmaker, it would have been much more embarrassing. I think, I think it would have gotten beat up a lot more uh, publicly and, Right. I also think it would have failed at the box office um, just because, yeah. yeah, the trailer never really looked that good to me. I was a little suspicious of pictures and clips I saw. The, the title, let's be honest, that title is terrible. Um, right. And and though it's sort of like explained very early on in the movie right. what the title means, like it doesn't ever really pay off. And it's such a clumsy, like it, it sort of, like it makes sense because it's a it's a reference to one of the characters, uh, like old bands that she was a part of, Renee Russo's character, who's a gallery owner in this world. Um, and so, it, like, it definitely is a 1990s band name. Like, yeah. it sounds like a, one of the more embarrassing ones, you know, like uh, Nickelback. <laughs> yeah, well, well. It, but like you know, this sort of like grungy riot era of just like kind of goofy names like Butthole Surfers. I think they were an eighties band actually that transitioned to the nineties. But just like, you know, that's a good weird, one. weird like pairings of words that you're just like, huh, why? Pearl jam. Why? <laughs> but like it doesn't so so that in itself is like that's a tough sell. It's a, in the 2019, like we said, is gonna be the year of the tough cells. But like, you know, there but it it is like flashy because it's so kind of garbagey where you're like velvet well, buzz. What the let's fuck? look at it this way, right? You and I almost we complain all the time or sort of mock the generic titles. Yeah, totally. Exist, and at least yeah. Velvet Buzzsaw stands out, right? Because you're no, like, absolutely yeah, there is that. There is that. Yeah, as opposed to like, you know, permanence. What? <laughs> Serenity. <laughs> Sentence. What? <laughs> the movie. Envelope. That's a movie? <laughs> We're getting into Mr. Show territory. It's just coupon <laughs> yeah, the movie coupon now. Coupon the movie. <laughs> um, so, yeah. yeah, like this this, this movie, like if we can sort of dip into the plot a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's an art world satire for the most part where we're following uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character who's an art critic. And um, pretty pretty good at it. Pretty apt at like portraying the sort of like detached, heightened pretension of that that mindset and that like character that like the disposition of a person that's drawn to a life like that. Mm. 
And so he um, like deals with a gallery owner played by Rene Russo. And then one of like his love interests who is an assistant at one of the galleries um, winds up discovering essentially an outsider artist after they die in the, the same apartment building that she lives in a whole like cache of art that they had just been sitting on. So it's this recluse who's been living alone, dies like, you know, anonymously and leaves behind this legacy of work that they um, demanded be destroyed upon their death. Um, <clears throat> so it's like a, a Harvey Darger, like legacy of art. Did you ever see that documentary in the no. realms of the unreal? No. So he's a guy who lived similarly, like entirely by himself. And then they found this like, surplus of like his artwork that they're like, I can't believe this existed. No one knew who he was. Um, so similar, but this is, this is a more like tortured art. It's very like every time someone like comes across it, they're instantly transfixed when they see it. Mm. So it's like an interesting hook for a movie where it's like, you have this, these kind of satirical caricatures operating the, in this world. They come across this like new outsider artist and everybody is like hypnotized by the, the by the potency of the art, and then it starts to unlock these kind of supernatural qualities from the kind of like uh, restless psyche of the the artist who is responsible for him, who's dead, who might be haunting the work. None of it's really explained, right. and like often in the sort of nightmare logic of horror movies, you don't need to explain it. Sometimes that kills the scare, but like in a movie that's sort of un easily transitioning between tones not sure of what, what movie it's making when it does make these like leaps to sort of more traditional like kind of hokier horror movies you know because it like it starts to dip into you know like kind of nightmare on elm street tales from the crypt terrain with mm-hmm. like the, the art essentially unlocking things that end up killing the people who are exposed to it and so, like, there's a lot of just balls in the air, so to speak. Um, there's just a lot of things this movie's juggling and trying to keep up. And so, at times, that's, like, often kind of dizzying and exciting to watch all of that, like, in the air and seeing what's going to land and seeing what's going to, like, pay off and work out. And ultimately, it gets busy enough to be intriguing for me and, like, rewardingly funny for me at times. But, like, it doesn't land in a place that makes me feel like all of its ideas were sort of comfortably communicated. Right. And, you know, not to, I'm, I'm like, I'm fine being uncomfortable, but this is just about like, in terms of paying off what it sets out to do, which I'm not sure it does. Right. And like, there's just, there still is like a lot to enjoy in this, in this film. Like, I think that there's a lot of banter that's really funny I think the cast, like we've said, is strong. Like we've already mentioned Rene Russo. There's also John Malkovich is in this movie. David Diggs from Blind Spotting is actually pretty funny and devastatingly handsome in it. See, I thought um, all these people were really wasted in this movie. David Diggs, I was like, awesome. Another movie with this the the guy from Blind Spotting, but he just sits there and vapes and looks at art in like three scenes. That's all he does. I think, I think that he's like effectively funny in that. Like at vaping. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, at staring vacantly at something. Sure. Okay, and There's then not much his, asked of him. His shirtless but, yeah. kitchen scene, like his <laughs> response, his timing is like pretty impeccable in that scene. Well, he's a good actor, and he can, yeah, he he can do yeah. what he can with even mediocre material. I think, I think, really, it's two movies squished together, and not, and each half of the movie, like each version, uh, the two halves aren't completed. They're just sort of like half-ass versions of an art world satire yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, like yeah, the nightmare on elm street's a really good uh comparison uh final destination has come up in reviews that i've read and I, it's hard not to think of that um because like when the murders start happening there's this sort of build up in a rube goldberg-esque sort of thing that that works just like those movies did um, kind of but like it's also like there's there's mechanics at work, but it's not logical in the way that there's a satisfaction with the final destination movies because you're watching like logic play out. Right. And like in this, it's not re- it's kind of just like whatever it takes to get to the kill. Right. Like someone can die by being sucked into a painting or paint can someone could die by being painted. We find out in a movie like, yeah, there's possible. Google it. <laughs> Um, yeah. So, uh, all that to say is that if there's any enjoyment that I took away from this movie is that it was occasionally just laughing at it, you know, and Mm -hmm. I don't want to dwell on just being mean to a movie, but I kind of think that's the, it's, it's nothing depressing about it. It's just sort of like, huh, this movie can just be sort of easily can just exist in Netflix chasm of titles. And it doesn't really matter because no one will come out looking that bad because it won't have that much of an impact. Um, yeah, there's I, not the same level of performance pressure when right. like someone, you know, that there was that argument about like how sort of phenomenal Bird Box was and phenomenal in terms of it being a phenomenon, not in that it was quality, but like... <laughs> Had that movie been released theatrically, like I think a lot of people argued that it wouldn't have done nearly the same like numbers as it did when it was just available as like some as a curiosity on something that's available to everyone's disposal, you know, where it was just like, oh, this is on. Uh, I've heard of it. Let's watch it. And then it that wound up getting like a total of whatever it was like. 45 million viewers like it was crazy weekend. yeah and i mean if you do the like math, a staggering amount exactly like if pe- all yeah. those people bought movie tickets i'd be able it'd be like a record-setting box office exactly so right there's that ease the, of watchability for it yeah and that just doesn't translate it just doesn't like you know the the scrutiny that would be available to a movie like velvet buzzsaw theatrically would just like uh, yeah i think it would crush it crush it like a um velour uh, sledgehammer <laughs> um, um. <laughs> it's true I, it's just uh, so you know i that's, you're mean though you're bullying this movie i think i, I am but this i think is, as a casual curiosity mm-hmm. i think there is there is something that that people could like you know could be satisfied by with this film. I think that there is like, it's, it's, it's decently shot with the exception of the green screen scene that you referenced off mic earlier. Um, I'm even going to, I'm going to disagree with you there, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. We're we're really, no, it's here. This is the thing I'm watching. Robert Ellswit is the DP again on this, as was Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler was so beautiful and cinematic Robert Ellswit, you know, previously has worked with almost all of Paul Thomas Anderson's films. This is a guy who's extremely talented, along with pretty much everybody in this movie. Um, I don't know who did the costume design, but I'll compliment the costumes in this movie because they seem 
accurate to that world, the sort mm-hmm. of LACMA uh, LA art world. Or mm-hmm. although I guess this movie is set in Miami, is that correct? Or wasn't? No, it? that's where they're at Art Basel at the beginning of the movie, which is where like a lot of new art is unveiled. Oh, see, so it is okay. it is set in Los Angeles. They're just at they're in Miami for a big like art conference at the beginning of the film. And uh, yeah, and it introduces you a lot of the, to all the characters. There is a an energy to that opening where you're like, all right, you know, like we're getting all the characters. It's setting everything up. Um, so I get like there there is something there but uh yeah for for me I just I I honestly um one of my other big takeaways beyond um I I honestly I thought the dialogue was really sort of either so on the nose that it was basically what these people might actually say and sound like or just ridiculous dialogue but I I don't know this world very well so to me this is like an outsider looking in where it just felt yeah. all phony and stupid to me well, I mean, that's the the art world is heightened and sort of ridiculous and sort of self parodying on its own. So it's just there there is that level of like pretension that's like suffocating in that world. Right. So it's like it's not inaccurate. And then, uh, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to remember that for my my next point. But ultimately, this was another example, and I think this is an unfortunate thing of what feels like a common Netflix movie. The the ones that usually don't feel as successful, uh, you know, being their 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 they've averaged that more often. Is it doesn't look like a movie to me. It looked rushed. Yeah. It looked poorly lit. It. I was kind of shocked that Robert Elswit shot this thing. And I, I don't know if um, productions, it had the sense of it was kind of rushed. They had, they had the, the cast that they could for a time. I just, I don't right. know, but it did have the feeling of a modern day sort of rush production. And it's, it's uh, it didn't look or feel like a movie to me. And that's uh that was a big thing. And when we get to our second review of piercing, it's another movie that's mostly going to be relegated to streaming and VOD, but uh, that one felt like a movie looked, uh, look like a movie. Right. To me. Uh, so yeah, you know, yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I should revise what I say, but it looked good. Um, cause <laughs> maybe I just like the, the scenery that it's depicting. It's an affirmation like, Hey, I live there. Like maybe that's all I was looking for, but like, we've discussed this before where, how like there there are people like you know Jeremy Saunier who you know released Hold the Dark on Netflix where yes. it's clear that he's still making the he's still holding the film to standards of the craft that he holds dear yeah and but there has to be an effect that happens where people are starting to make art like with the platform that it's coming out on in consideration. Mm -hmm. And I think that like the more people start to consider like that, it's going to be playing on people's laptops and on their TVs. And that starts to dictate how, like a sort of lack of regard for how it's made. That's, that's going to become all the more kind of like apparent in the finished product. Like you and I felt that way about the Coen brothers movie about Mm -hmm. Buster Scruggs, that there was like, some kind of shoddy CGI in it, you know, some digital effects that like, you know, they, they, the effects wouldn't have been possible uh, practically most likely, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that I want to look at like poorly rendered CGI effects. And so like just those limitations, like, especially I just, I get sad. Yeah, yeah. I get sad a lot, but um, <laughs> like watching what was considered schlock at, in a certain era. Yes. You know, yes. you know, like certain 
like B movies and genre movies that were considered kind of like trash art, but they were still made with the machinery that was in place to make them still had a kind of classical standard to it. Yes. Like the, you know, especially with shooting on film, which this movie looks like it wasn't. No way. It it couldn't have been. No way. So (laughs) just the, the act of like lighting, how like you have to be very specific with how you light a movie when you're shooting on film. Like I remember watching pretty close together a few years ago, Cujo and like Mm -hmm. uh, Friday the 13th part three, which Mm -hmm. is like not, like out of a series that's not critically regarded highly, that's not one of the ones even in that series that's regarded like fondly. Yeah. But like, I remember watching some of the fluid kind of handheld camera work and it was like pushing through a laundry line on sort of a dark night. And I was like, this is gorgeously shot. (laughs) And like that level of craft that's in place because of the machinery that was like there, I think still that still resonates and it still shows up. And then to see, you know, like people just being like, well, you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to worry about lighting as much because you shoot on digitally and it'll adjust. And it's just like, okay, but it's like, you're losing something in the process. Yeah, sure. It's not as arduous and as much of a struggle, but that lack of that, I think ends up like being visible on screen. Does that make any sense? It makes a hundred percent sense. That's exactly what I feel. And I, I, I don't know about you, but I noticed that in a movie that modern, like, like I notice it right away, you know, especially if I see it in a theater. Um, uh, and I just, um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, it's an unfortunate thing. I don't want, uh, hopefully, I I guess what it's going to do is start to separate, uh, for us, the ones that still like the Jeremy Saulniers of the world. I um, I rewatched Cold War last week and was reminded of like, oh, yeah, these are what mo- this is what a movie should look like. I right. think I could be wrong, but I think Cold War was shot digitally. And boy, it doesn't matter because that is gorgeous. You know, it it belongs on a big screen and the lighting and everything looks correct, you know, and uh there's just something about that. And, and Velvet Buzzsaw essentially just being a horror movie. And I don't mean that to disparage it. The fact that it is no. ju- just a horror movie. That's great. Like make an art world satire. That's a horror movie. That sounds great. Right. But uh, this one is so brightly lit. So sort of like not, a you know, good looking overall that uh, it's hard to even get lost in that. And it just seems to be at odds with the, by the time people start getting, you know, killed and, uh, bringing up the Friday the 13th series is a good one. At least there's like a charm to those movies. They could be mean-spirited sometimes. They but and a similar thing to Velvet Buzzsaw is you you kind of want to see these characters get killed, but there was just a different charm beyond even the sort of uh celluloid-aided uh, you know, beauty to those movies that we can look back on and actually say, "Hey, there's like a quality to that that's lacking now." And Velvet Buzzsaw is a much in theory, it's a bigger production than any of those Friday the 13th movies, but it looks so much smaller and cheaper. And um, by the time characters that are all designed to be awful in the film are being killed, it's just sort of a dull slog after a while. And occasionally I got a laugh at some of the attempts to like, you know, have some elaborate murder, like someone being painted to death. I certainly Mm -hmm. laughed here and there, but um, you know, this one was, was kind of, out of sight, out of mind. Um, you know, as soon as we're done talking about it, I, I might forget I ever saw Velvet Buzzsaw. I don't right. know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, there's there's a line that really stuck out that I think that there are some like sharp barbs in the movie that I I think that the, the script does sort of like hit strides at certain points. But um, 
while being confronted in a gallery uh, for a bad review, Jake Gyllenhaal says a bad review is better than vanishing into the glut of anonymity. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's good. I like that. That's true. Although it might kind of apply to this movie. <laughs> I will say the final shot over the credits, uh, it has to do with John Malkovich uh, doing something on the sand. That yeah. gave me a really nice chuckle too. Um, there was something about it where I actually think it landed in the way it was intended, which is partially what made me laugh so hard because I thought so much of the attempts personally just did not land for me where I was like, oh my gosh. But uh, there is a great little like uh, sign off at the end of the movie with John Malkovich because otherwise I was like, why is he in this movie? Like, why did they need him for like three scenes to play this just <laughs> totally exhausted a former, formerly successful artist? Um, it's like a role he's great for, and I guess that's it. But um, is he is he in Art School Confidential, which I, this movie obviously reminds me of, good, and people hate that movie? Yeah, I remembered being frustrated by that movie, but I think now I want to go back and actually look at it because it might work a lot better than this. But he he is, I think, he's one of the professors in that movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. I actually like that movie quite a bit. Um, but people just trash that movie mercilessly. Well, I haven't seen it since it came out, and uh, yeah, I had issues with it. But man, uh, it might be the one to check out if if, if someone likes Velvet Buzzsaw. I don't know. Give give our Art School Confidential uh, a spin. It might be even better. Yeah, <laughs> that's my endorsement. Our next film, uh, so you know, not not similar necessarily, but in terms of like being a, a hybrid movie. Uh, mm-hmm. I, when I texted you after watching it, I didn't realize that the source material that was based on was actually from the author of Audition. Yeah, Ryu Murakami. Yeah. So I was like, I likened it to Audition, not even realizing the like connection it has with (laughs) Audition, the, you know, that the Takashi Miike movie was based on and... Mm -hmm. So there's uh this is this is a film um a brisk 85 minute movie 80 minute yeah maybe. it's yeah this uh Pesci uh as a director keeps his movies tight that is pretty sure. lean yeah. yeah um I like it <laughs> yeah it's it's nice um but so he he's he takes a an entry point uh into a character who is maybe psychosexually uh malformed mm. uh, and he uh <laughs> you like the does I that did. sound like our 90s band psychosexually <laughs> malformed <laughs> exactly um so christopher abbott plays like one of the leads in this film mm-hmm. uh and he he's like a new father he lives in a, a high-rise apartment like lives in a nice like plush environment seems to even in the the sort of brief opening moments have like the domestic life intact that so many people strive for, but he's troubled because he, he hears he there's it's a very like tense opening moment oh my gosh, yeah. where he's on the precipice of doing something terrible to one of the people in his like small domestic life, <laughs> there his wife or his newborn baby. And then the movie transitions into something kind of like heightened and hallucinatory. And like immediately uh, the laugh I got, which was intended, um, I believe there's a, just an absurd moment where something speaks that you wouldn't imagine would be able to speak with the voice that it does. And like, (laughs) that's always a good, a a good way into my heart, whether it's the Fox and antichrist. Yes. 
or the next door neighbor's dog in Summer of Sam. Anything that's, 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 that's not the best one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anything that's like you're not expecting to talk and does and says some weird shit. Great. On board. I'm in. <laughs> so that's like the sort of door kicking down of this movie where we like we're we're watching this person who has these terrible compulsions and he we're, we're sort of led into his world where he feels like he has to kill somebody. So he sets up a date with um, a call girl and he's getting ready in his like hotel room before her to arrive. And he's got it strategically planned out. He actually walks through like what the series of events are going to be and like a sort of startlingly sound designed sequence. It's so good. It's so it's good. amazing. Cause it's like, you're, you're just hearing what would happen as he's sort of like pantomiming through it. Mm-hmm. And it like, without seeing like the, the reality of what might happen, happen, it's fucking startling just to hear the noises. And it's like a, just a beautifully orchestrated sequence. <clears throat> and then like from there, the movie, um, we could backpedal to talk about like how the sort of like visual layout of the film is established, but like uh, it takes um, a weird, like uh, psychosexual power dynamic turn and becomes like a upended. It's not a rom-com by any (laughs) stretch, but like I said, it was like Wes Anderson directing audition after watching a lot of Brian De Palma. It might be like Brian De Palma, directing 50 shades of gray as a giallo or yeah, yeah. If, if you have one i don't know but like those are those are my spins on like and all of those sound like they could be messy endeavors but like this movie is so tight in terms of like the precision of its vision and like it's it's acted so beautifully both between christopher abbott and mia what's her or wachowski <laughs> vasakaska what, what, what like yeah I think their like their interplay, their individual performances are beautiful, and then their interplay is incredibly like complicated and like beautifully played out. And like they're they're both actors that I enjoy watching like on their own. And just like they're the fact that it's mostly a two person play. Right. You know, like there's there's some side characters. His wife like has a nice scene over the phone. There's a there's somebody that they run into in the hotel that there's a tense exchange with, but it's mostly just the two of them. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's such uh, an uncertain kind of like nightmare scape that keeps like morphing into something like weird, like the what <clears throat> what would be a normal trajectory of watching someone act out torture is totally upended and like completely rearranges you in terms of the what dynamic is being established right right there's a series of reveals in this movie because it 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 turn it sort of continues to upend what you think right this is a movie that loves messing with the viewer's assumptions um because it gives you things that you think okay I, i know what's going on here it's very twisted very dark right off the bat uh, and then there's some of that absurdist humor right away, but you don't, you still don't, I, I don't know about you. I definitely did not know it was going to be as comedic as it is at times. No, 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 no. Um, and it's considering his previous film eyes of my mother, which like it's is not a laugh, right? <laughs> no, it's like, it's got an astonishing like opening scene. that's so gripping. Like the mm-hmm. first like 20 minutes, maybe. Yeah. And then the rest of it kind of becomes like, 
an endurance test of unpleasantness. It becomes more typical when you realize what the movie ultimately is. Uh, I I rewatched it the other day and I think it's power still really exists in the visuals in the really, um, and and this, maybe this is just a thing for Pesci is that's like, he's a very uh, efficient storyteller and, um, he gets things across without dwelling on it very long. It works differently in piercing because for one, the movie has a little, a lot more kind of entertainment value to it. Whereas the eyes of my mother at least sort of um, alludes to really graphic upsetting violence, but still dwells on it at times too. Um, It's, it's a, it's an interesting mix that he gets at, but um, the most impressive thing about eyes of my mother is that the cinematography, that stark contrasty black and white, uh, digital look and then the way he sort of cuts away from stuff that would be almost just too horrible to to observe um, mm-hmm. so there's some impressive things especially for like a first time feature but yeah to see him step into this realm with Pearson where it's like he's having a little more fun the two leads are um, so essential to making this work because they have this uh, Mia Vasakovska and Christopher Abbott have this oddball chemistry that like visually they they don't seem to like look right but they they seem like you know in in this weird way by the end of the movie it's like they could make it work <laughs> and mm-hmm. to even get to that point there's just so much other messed up stuff going on um it's a it's a fascinating ride of a movie um and but i was just continually loving how like every 20 minutes there'd be some reveal there there's something you learn about christopher abbott and his wife's relationship that that completely upends upended what I thought was going on there. Um, and that's early on in the film. So you're getting these little hints and then it just starts to really kind of work its its way off the rails. Well, there's also the idea of an unreliable narrator, which Mm. I think is what you're talking about. Like the reveal is, ah, yes, you're not, you're not certain of what's happening. And like that, good point that could often sort of deflate tension if it's like handled poorly. Cause if you're just like, I don't know what's going on because the perspective keeps shifting. And I don't know if this is like a figment of someone's imagination, but this is, it's so masterfully handled in this movie that mm-hmm. like, it's just a ride of someone's kind of like unraveling sanity. And it's, but it's the sort of mutual insanity of the two characters meeting. And I I mentioned the sort of like visual layout of the movie, like, but we haven't discussed like that. It's a, it's a movie that like it's, it's you, it's use of models in terms of like kind of establishing this vast metropolis that they're in is so like stunning and hypnotic to look at. And it's like, it introduces you to an, an, artifice, but it's an artifice that like gives you a sense of otherworldliness as well. Like we were talking about with um, the sort of cheapness of movies that are made for streaming. Like, I mean, obviously models are incredibly intricate and like painstaking to create, but they're not in like insanely expensive, but it gives you a sense of scale and a sense of world building, even if you're aware of the sort of artificiality of it. Yes. That I think is beautiful. And I think that like we, we often reference back to the sort of like models and practical effects and like Blade Runner and stuff like that. And so it's just like to take that and like, you know, use it as this kind of of beautiful illustration of this artificial world that they're in while also introducing things like literal, like scores from Giallo movies of the past or deep red theme pops up a few times. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So they like, they literally like kind of infuse, like it's, it's, it's a sort of pastiche of all these things and it synergizes into something that like, you know, I haven't seen before, you know, especially like with these particular actors and it's like a filmmaker who's, you know, like made a really compelling like previous feature one that like, you know, kind of wore me down and bummed me out, but you know, it was like made an impression nonetheless. And then has like sophisticated their vision and like kind of up the ante and made a more like exciting cocktail of like a visual experience. Yeah. And it's like, proof that it, it's a small movie. It's going to get a small release. Right. And it's mostly going to be seen on TVs or laptops, but yet it was made to immerse you as much as possible. It, it feels big. I, I, I couldn't help but think that even though it's such a small focus story, right. It could be a play in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, especially with like the sort of like the backdrop, like you could just have like someone in an apartment or a hotel room setting and then just have the sort of like, you know, matte painting sort of backdrop. And like, there's that, but there's just like, even as you're aware that it's fake, there's still, that's, that's still a real set that someone made, you know, like it's, it's like, it's not a real building obviously, but it's like, it's still something that like, a craft went into making it. Not that like computer generated effects aren't their own painstaking craft process, but like, I don't know. There's just something about being in an actual physical space that creates a sense of scale. And that sense of scale is felt in this movie. Yeah. And yeah, like it's just, uh, I actually might see this in the theater. Cause like I, you and I watched screener links for it. Cause that's oftentimes how, you know, we experience not oftentimes, but enough of the time. Yeah, but it's like becoming more common. This is playing, you know, in one theater in the Los Angeles area. So I might, I might take a chance. Yeah, I'm, I'm going if any theater in Portland gets it. I just, I haven't heard yet if anybody will. Um, and you know, that's that's the thing. I would love to get to see this one again. I, um, I, I think, I think it's really the it's tone for this one again. You know, to make sort of an obvious point is like. Uh, this director has such a, a handle on the story and the tone that he's going for that it feels very strongly weaved throughout the entire movie. Whereas our the Velvet Buzzsaw was like a mess of not knowing what tones it, it, it wanted right. to hit. And yeah. uh, I think that's really what makes something like that what piercing work. And I also love how you 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 alluded to this in some ways. Like it creates its own world with the the model aesthetic, the way it gets like uh, you know, outdoor shots through models, um, but also the the cutting, the split screen, the use of all these like ways to move the story forward. But uh, also loved how it exists in its own world, um, and this is where it has the Wes Anderson vibe to it, where. Christopher Abbott kind of dresses like Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. So like, are we in the eighties or the nineties? They only use phones that are, you know, landlines. uh, landlines. Thank you. I don't even know what they call those anymore. (laughs) Um, There's all these things that you, you know, it, it gets, it kind of knocks you off a little bit as a viewer. We are like, what world am I in? And it's not our world. Um, It's cause it's, it's not necessarily like uh, in the past. It's like this. It's its own movie world where they have different technology, and um, that's really subtle. Uh, there, there was something that I actually really liked in that the the miniseries Maniac on Netflix that we talked about uh, last year. Um, but I really, I really think it's honed and just again so efficiently told in this story. 
um, that it all, it really, really works. And I love that this movie just creates its own world. Um, and yeah, I, I also don't think we can say enough about the, the two lead performers. Um, Mia Wasikowska continues to be such a like interesting young actress, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, she, she seems to have like a real, um, affection for doing these sort of twisted stories like Stoker, you know, working with these directors that do, um, horror cinema, but are trying to, you know, make add their own stamp to it. There's, there's always this weirdness to a lot of the movies that she's in. And, uh, yeah, Christopher Abbott, um, just as well, like everything I see him in, uh, he continues to just be such, such an exciting actor. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I like this movie a lot. I think it's a lot of fun and I did not expect that, you know, eyes of my mother is not a fun movie. It's an impressive one. Uh, but this one, uh, has like a lot of fun to it for sure. Yeah. There's definitely just like a, a kind of like exploitative, like a, a sophisticated exploitation thrill to it. And we mentioned Brian De Palma earlier. And I think that he's like, he's definitely a through line in terms of like the exploration of something pulpier and kind of psychosexual while still elevating it to a level of kind of like art, artfulness that's yeah. like impressive. So it's like, it's just a great cocktail and you know, like these, both of these films are kind of like on paper, they're potentially, they're, they're potentially tonal messes. And like, mm-hmm. there's, there's a clarity. I think that there's, there's potential joy and enjoyment in both of them, but there's a clarity and a focus to this that shows that like, you know, this is a filmmaker I'm definitely like interested in checking with and, Turns out he's responsible for, I don't even know what you'd call it at this point. Um, the reboot of the, the grudge is coming out later this year. Yeah. And as much as that kind of is, is an immediate kind of nosedive in terms of like interests. Like I watched the teaser trailer for it. It's pretty good. It, yeah, there's like, it's, it's a similar kind of exciting use of sound design mm-hmm. and like for how, wrote and predictable trailers have become uh which is just a reflection of like how predictable like overall kind of like motion picture storytelling can become like this is actually an interesting a rhythmically interesting trailer yeah and like that's i'm sure that's hard to do like there's it it concludes with this weird like it's like a vibrating still and it's like a a a sound cue that's like uh, just some weird kind of like ambient rumbling. Yeah. And it's like, wow, that's a, that's a weird punctuation for like, <laughs> for a trailer. And it's like so rare because like we just get into these like grooves of how like trailers are supposed to be put out. Okay. Let's have a creepy um, acapella version of some song. Everybody knows. Okay. Let's do that. The shitty floor stomping blue white guy blues song playing. Okay. Like, there's just like, I know that things are like, I've heard this term that's called trailer moments where uh, like you, you have to think about in the script, the trailer moments. So right. like if these two things are reflecting each other in terms of predictability, it just winds up with this dead end and anybody that can find a way around these dead ends to find new kind of avenues, like I think is well worth like checking in with and Nicholas Pesci long story short, he's one of them. He's one of them for sure. And I, I just think like to, for me to summarize the two movies that we saw is like, the, there are directors we've been referencing in this episode that 
had um, both of these movies, I think, Piercing and Velvet Buzzsaw, have have moments where they can or could have been very silly, right? It's this heightened, absurdist genre elements to them. But like, I think of like Brian De Palma's movies. I think of Paul Verhoeven. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and watching both of these films, um, also Mario Bava, Dario Argento, there'd be these moments of um, David Cronenberg movies. Sometimes there's like mm-hmm. silliness to them, like it, be it the acting style back then or certain weird um, tonal or storytelling techniques. But they'd always like the really great ones that those directors made would would be elevated. And it's the reason we talk about these directors still. And it, I think it's the reason they're so influential to, you know, a movie like piercing especially is, uh, but what makes piercing really work for me is that it remembers that like you have to be immersed and it has to feel bigger than it really is. It's a low budget movie, but you have to like get into the world. You have to do something to make us feel like at cinematic, right? The De Palma could have as goofy as shit as possible in his movies, but you would, the best stuff of his gets so heightened and you get lost in it where you, you forget how goofy something is Uh blowout is an example that has like this goofy stuff to it. Um, without getting too, you know, in the weeds in it, but like it works for that movie because he he just raises the like you're just lost in the storytelling, in the way it's being presented to you, the way it's shot and it sounds. And that's something that I feel like Dan Gilroy and the people that made Velvet Buzzsaw just felt like they were too rushed to even bother with. They were like just you know, hitting their days and and whatever. Um I just think that's the big difference is those filmmakers are still remembered because whatever goofy elements were there, they uh, would write the ship because you were lost in the cinematic quality of it. And uh, as small a movie as piercing is, it's not going to be remembered at the end of the year when a lot of people are doing their top 10 lists. But uh, that's a shame because it's, it's a small movie that remembers to still be cinematic. And I think that's really the big difference for me. If you, you want to avoid the Super Bowl this weekend, you know, give some, some little movies a shot. And like, this is the time of year that we're often discussing the sort of like glossed over kind of little films that find like enough room to breathe in this sort of opening couple months of the year. So piercing. And if, you know, you want to give (laughs) a messy movie a shot with a good cast, like velvet buzzsaw. Yeah. Let us know if you liked it more than me. Maybe, maybe even liked it more than Joe who was, who's I like, uh, I like when you don't like shit though. It's exciting. (laughs) It's where you're such a polite person that like when you're like when you really dig into something, it's 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 fun to have you play bad cop sometimes. Well, that's good. It's gotta be my turn sometimes, right? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> All right. So uh what do you say? Should we wrap up this episode? I think so. So just chill to the next episode. All right, buddy. So episode one hundred and ninety seven of Adjuster Tracking. It's only a few more and we'll be celebrating number two hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, quite a landmark here. We're, we're going to get there. Um, you can find all of our episodes at theplaylist.net. We are, of course, a part of the Playlist Podcast Network. Uh, find our other shows on there, the Playlist Podcast. We've got Be Real, Indie Beat, uh, and, and us, Adjust Your Tracking. That sort of makes up the team right now. And uh, we'd be very thankful if you supported that and rate and reviewed us on your podcatcher of choice. Um, but there's only one person left for me to thank, and that is, of course, you, Joe Von Oppen. Thanks for talking with me today. Thanks, Eric.